Christian greetings from our risen Lord and Savior this morning. It's a pleasure to be here with you. I've appreciated the thoughts that have been shared that Ivan brought, as well as the um, scriptures read and so forth, and then what you all shared as a congregation as well this morning so far. Before I get started here, um, is there... I have plenty of handouts here, literally for anyone that wants one, including young children. Is there, are there those that would like one that don't have one? Um, okay, Darren, do you mind handing out? And um, I will just mention that th we'll get to this later. We're not going to focus on this at the moment, but on the back side is a uh, word search puzzle, and so uh, I welcome the youngsters to uh, take that and um, look at that later as well. And I'll just mention while I'm thinking about it, the words that you were to look for are in the bold in the passage below that. <clears throat> Some of what I have to share this morning is going to sound a little bit repetitive from what we've already heard. Uh, I'm not apologetic about that. Um, I, as I focused on and thought about what God laid on my heart, um, I felt convicted this is what I'm to share, and so I'm going to, even though we may have already heard it in a form already uh, at one point this morning. So I just want to focus on and think about it a little bit, the idea of the resurrection miracle that we've already talked about, the reason we're here this morning, really. At the close of Jesus' three years of earthly ministry, Jesus traveled to Jerusalem knowing what awaited him. Several passages of, uh, or in several of the Gospels, it mentions that he set his face toward Jerusalem. He knew that the cheering crowds that are, were spreading palm leaves and singing Hosanna in the highest as he rode into the city on a donkey would a few short days later abandon him. It would be nowhere to be found. Knowing that he would be falsely accused, knowing that he would suffer unimaginable pain, knowing that he would face cruel death, and yet knowing all of this, he did not detour around Jerusalem or avoid going there. And then after an unjust trial and condemnation to death, Jesus was crucified. He was abandoned by many of those closest to him. He was humiliated by being nailed on a cross, likely naked, as a public spectacle. And as Ivan mentioned, he died. He was physically dead. His heart stopped beating. His brain function ceased. He wasn't breathing. His flesh grew cold and stiff. Various Gospels re, uh, record different aspects of this, but Nicodemus brought a mixture of about 75 pounds of myrrh and, uh, and aloes to carefully wrap Jesus' lifeless body with linens and these spices before placing him in a nearby tomb that was owned by Joseph of Arimathea. There was no memorial service. There were no eulogies. There were no tributes. There was no visitation. 
I can only imagine, I mean, or we can barely imagine, but to Jesus' family, to the disciples and other close friends, it felt like everything was hopeless at that point. And the only fact that is recorded in Scripture about Saturday is that the guards were posted by the tomb to make sure that nobody would tamper with the tomb or the body of Jesus because everyone knew with absolute certainty that Jesus was dead. The angry crowds that were around on Friday dispersed and they returned to their homes. I imagine the disciples were together somewhere um, quietly, soberly, crying, remembering and reflecting on highlights of the previous three years, wondering what went wrong, despondent at the loss of the hopes and dreams that they had. What happened? Why? And they may not have said it out loud, but I'm sure that some of them thought, Jesus failed us. It was a noble attempt, but the establishing of his kingdom failed. And um, a bit along the line of what Darren was sharing, you know, we've all experienced Saturdays. Those days when our dreams are shattered, when we wake up and we're still alive and we wonder why and we have to go on and even don't know, we don't know how we can even proceed. We all have these Saturdays, these periods of loss and mourning, grief, lament, because life is hard. Um, it's confusing. It's disappointing. Things don't turn out the way that we envision. Our expectations are dissipated. We wonder which way to turn. But then we do have the promise, the hope of tomorrow, of resurrection, of redemption as well. And I'm just grateful this morning that the story of Jesus does not end with Saturday. I invite you to turn your Bibles to Matthew 28. <clears throat> and I want to read the account of the resurrection from Matthew. Uh, we already heard it from the perspective of Luke. Um, I find it fascinating to read the gospel accounts about the resurrection um, because each one brings out a different dimension. <clears throat> and this one uh, emphasizes some things that some of the other uh, Gospels don't. I've, I've chosen to read the first 15 verses here of Matthew 28. <clears throat> now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, so very early, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow, and for fear of him the guards trembled and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here, for he is risen as he said. Come. See the place where he lay, then go and quickly tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee, there you will see him. See, I have told you. 
So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell the disciples. Behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. And while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests of all that had taken place. And when they assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ear, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread upon, among the Jews to this day. Just a fascinating account here. But that Sunday morning, apparently almost at dawn, or maybe at dawn, Jesus was raised from the dead. You know, um, Ivan was wondering, you know, like, was it sudden or, or not? I would be under the impression that it was just, just like that. He was alive. And this great earthquake, the stone, this massive stone being rolled away, an angel appeared in glorious light, and the soldiers, these elite Roman guards, the best they had, fell down as if knocked unconscious, frightened, paralyzed, with fear or awe. I don't, we don't know exactly what. <clears throat> but Jesus was alive. And we see that the chief priests and the soldiers and the governor all were taking steps to try to keep this story, keep this event from becoming public. And so they spread this rumor, uh, which, you know, just on the face of it, think about it, these elite soldiers falling asleep on guard and, and the disciples coming and moving this massive stone and stealing the body under their watch. I mean, it's, that's far more unbelievable than the resurrection itself. Um, and so Jesus was alive. He appeared to them. Uh, and, the, and he was alive and he is alive, as has already been stated as well. And all of the turmoil, the hopelessness, the confusion, the sorrow, and the questions of the disciples from the day before are now suddenly replaced with hope, wonder, excitement, and delight. This is not the only recorded resurrection in Scripture, but there are two things that make it unique from any other resurrection. The first one is that no one else was involved in this resurrection. Jesus was raised from the dead by his own divine spirit supernaturally at exactly the right time. There was not a prophet that went to the tomb and spoke to the body or laid on the body as we see in the Old Testament, uh, like, not like Lazarus calling him to come out, but he was resurrected by his own power. And then the other big difference is that other persons resurrected ultimately died again. Not Jesus. He was given a new body a resurrected body, one that is still alive to this very day and will never die. He conquered death and he defeated Satan. 
I'd like for you to take out your Into His Presence songbooks and turn to number 24. And we are going to sing um, this song together. Some of you may recall that last year we played this online. Uh, it was a new song. Uh, we were having our Easter service online. But uh, we sing the, the line, the, the song piece, the music piece of it twice. Well, I mean, it, we sing it through once, and then there's the, the scripture readings that go with it. And so I'll read the, uh, the regular size font, and then you join me, and uh, in responsively, you read the bold parts of the font. And then when it says refrain, we sing the chorus again, and we do that five different times through here. So Darren, uh, go ahead. <clears throat> I'm going to shift gears here a little bit now. And we're going to come back around, and I think you'll see how this all ties together. But I want to focus this morning, the, the core of what I want to focus on is that Jesus Christ is preeminent. And, you know, what is preeminence? That's not a word that we use much today. It's not a word that uh, I, is in my everyday vocabulary, that's for sure. The Greek word... Um, as used here, and this is one of the only places in Scripture that this is used. I think there's two other places that it might be used, but in a different context. But the Greek word means to hold in the highest rank of a group, to be first, to occupy first place, to take precedence over or priority over that of superior status, to be above all else. And uh, there is a passage of Scripture in Colossians that elegantly and profoundly describes this aspect of Jesus and gives several reasons for his preeminence. And um, the passage that Ivan read from Ephesians would be another one that also points to that as well. It's interesting, it's believed by, most, by many New Testament scholars that verses 15 to 20 of Colossians 1, the part that you have printed out on, on the handout that I gave you, was an early Christian hymn whose language Paul just simply included as part of his letter to the church in Colossae. And in these few short verses, we see the preeminence of Christ so profoundly and clearly established. And I'm going to, uh, to have us uh, read this. What I'd like for you to do is to stand, and we're gonna, uh, I'm going to start before, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Colossians 1, but then we're going to read together this, uh, these verses from 15 to 20. So stand together, and I'm going to start in verse 9, which verses 9 through 14 have been favorite verses of mine as well. I'll start in verse 9, and then when we get to verse 15, I'll have you all join in, and we'll read verses 15 through 20 together from your handout. And then I'll continue a bit on beyond that. And so we have heard, I'm sorry, and so from the day we have heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all of the, 
endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in, his, in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Join me as we read in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. You may be seated. <clears throat> One of the reasons I gave you the handouts, this passage of Scripture is so rich in my Bible, it is all marked up. Uh, I would encourage you to circle words, underline words, draw lines, make notes. There's space on the paper to do that as you, think, as you see things this morning as we look at this together. <clears throat> The first thing that I see here is that Jesus, well, it says clearly in here that he is preeminent over everything, uh, and we'll get to that. But I think there's also some very clear reasons given why Jesus is preeminent. And the first is because he is God. It's very simple. In the first part of verse 15 there, he, Jesus, is the image of, of the invisible God. Now just think about that. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus looks just like the God of the universe. Jesus is the spitting image of God, if you will. There's just so much there to even think think about. So God revealed himself in Jesus. And the Hebrew writer brings this out as well in Hebrews 1. The first four verses <clears throat> state this. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke by our fathers, the prophets. But in these last days, he spoke to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. 
From these statements, I believe that we can confidently say that if you want to see God, take a closer look at his beloved son, Jesus Christ, and you will see who God is. He is the means. Jesus is the means for humanity to see the invisible and almighty God. He is the telescope by which we make an invisible God visible. An invisible God is made visible to us mankind. He's bringing him closer to us so that we can at least see what he is like. There's parts of creation that are not visible to the naked eye. Um, you know, you need, so for some things are so small, you need a microscope to see them because they, we simply can't see them. Other things are so far away, you need a powerful telescope to see them. I am told that uh, the Hubble telescope was pointed at an area of the sky where there was total blackness and the power was increased to see what might be there. And as they did so, they discovered numerous galaxies of stars that had never been seen before. And I think that that's a picture of what Jesus is for God. It gives us a means by which to see what this invisible and powerful God is really like. And as a result, that means that Jesus is simply a key to life's most profound questions. He, he gives us a picture of who God is, and he, he allows us to see him and to know him and, and be known by him. And, and so God reveals himself to man through Jesus. So Jesus is preeminent because he is God. The second thing, the second reason is Jesus is preeminent because he is creator. And we see that continuing in verse 15 through 17. The firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. Again, I encourage you, take some time to just ponder these couple of verses. Uh, it's, it's more than I can get my head around. It's, it's so, so profound what all this includes. First, a description or, you know, the, the word firstborn used here. He's the firstborn of all creation. That does not mean that Jesus was the first created being. That would be one definition, or that's one way that you could theoretically look at this. Firstborn means, like, in priority of time, if you will, of, of being the one born first. But if we look at the subsequent statements, it's pretty clear that's not what is meant here. But another definition of firstborn is that they are the rightful heir. And I believe that that is exactly what he's trying to communicate here, that Jesus is the rightful heir of all of creation. He, he is the creator. He makes that clear in the next phrase. For by him all things were created. And if he was created, 
that would mean he was not the creator. Um, and so uh, Jesus is the creator of all things. I find it fascinating. Paul must really be trying to emphasize something here five times in these two and a half verses. He uses the term all creation or all things. There's no question that it includes everything. There's no room for debate. Literally every molecule that exists was created by Jesus, including those billions, trillions, whatever, that have not yet been discovered, that are far smaller than what we've seen or far greater, farther away than what we've even seen. Jesus created all things, visible and invisible. And it includes whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created by Jesus. And they were created, it goes on to say, they were created through him and for him as well. So they were created by Jesus, through Jesus, and for Jesus. His existence predates Every, all matter, everything that has ever been created. And then, not only is he creator, he is creator, but he is also sustainer. To this day, Jesus holds everything together, holds creation together, sustains creation. If he chose not to do so, I believe all it would take is him not overseeing creation, if you will, and holding it together, it would literally explode into chaos at a moment's notice. Jesus is holding things together. And it's only because of his intentional and ongoing care for creation and for mankind that he is holding this together. So just a profound statement to think about. I mean, it's nothing new, if you will, but Jesus is the uncreated creator and sustainer of all things. And we can rest in the assurance that nothing can happen that God does not have control over. There's no need to fear. There's no need to stress and worry over things that we cannot control. And then Jesus Christ is preeminent because he's the head of the church, verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. Greek scholars indicate that the word and, that this sentence begins with, and he is the head of the church, puts an emphasis on that, meaning that Jesus Christ alone is the head of the church. Basically, and he alone is the head of the body. The church is connected to Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit in believers. And as the sole head of the church, he is the one that is directing things within the church. I find it fascinating that this statement, him being the head of the church, is included in this discussion and identification of who Jesus is being preeminent. That Jesus is God, he is creator, and he's the head of the church, 
indicates the incredible value and prominence that Jesus puts on the church, his body. There's nothing on earth that is more important to him than the church. He promised in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And he alone is building the church, his body, local gatherings of believers committed to working together and building his kingdom. Given this prominence, Jesus gives the body of Jesus of Christ, I think it's indicative for what we, how we should view it as well. He cares deeply for the church, probably more than anything else. And then the fourth aspect, Jesus Christ is preeminent because he is risen. Uh, verse, last part of verse 18. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Here the term firstborn is used again, and this time not as an heir to all of creation, but Jesus truly was the first person to be resurrected with a new resurrection body that will live for all eternity, and that's promised to all believers at the end of time. It also just reinforces the enormous power of Christ, raising himself from the dead. Jesus defeated death on Resurrection Day 2,000 years ago. He gave the first glimpse to us of what that new creation might look like in the future. You know, he rose from the dead, and, you know, creating the stars and the galaxies and the most minute things is truly miraculous, but a far greater miracle was performed when he overcame death, enabling our redemption from the power of sin. And now, as in the past as well, but Jesus truly is the only source of life that we have and the only source of eternal life to come. I know it's getting a little bit... Uh, late here, but I would like for us to take time to sing another song, and then I want to, I'll wrap up here. Number 27 in, um, in, in this booklet, Into His Presence, Sing With All the Saints in Glory. Darren, if you would lead that for us. <clears throat> Jesus Christ is preeminent in everything. So we've listed a few of the things as to why. But then he continues in verses 18 to 20. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or heaven, making peace by the blood of Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ gave him preeminence over everything. God and his fullness, again, this is a phrase that is just hard for me to grasp. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. God was pleased to dwell in Jesus Christ. Every aspect of God in some form was present in Jesus here on earth. How an infinite and perfectly holy eternal deity can inhabit or can put an image of himself in a human body is beyond my comprehension. But it says that God was pleased to do so in order to bring redemption to us. Jesus began the reconciliation of all things 
with his life, death, and resurrection. And this reconciliation of all things seems to include more than just mankind. It's all of creation, all things, whether in heaven or earth. There is a reconciliation, a redemption awaiting. And so Jesus truly is preeminent, has superiority over anything that we can imagine. He is Lord of Lords. He is King of Kings. He is superior to anyone or anything that we can imagine. And so what do we do with that reality? Just want to challenge you that preeminence impacts all of life. We, we put something that is superior, something superior rules our lives. And what is it? Is it Jesus? Are there areas of my life that Jesus does have preeminence? Are there areas that he does not? And why? Why would we not give him that rightful place, that rightful position of superiority and authority in our lives? <clears throat> I'd like to just read several verses from Colossians yet and, and wrap up with a few thoughts. If you've then been raised with Christ, seek those things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds or affections on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. As we continue, if we would continue reading there in Colossians, the first 17 verses there is talking about putting off the old self and putting on the new self. And I think that that gives you a picture of when we have our old self, we are not giving Christ preeminence. It's as we make Christ preeminent in our lives, that new self can then be put on. And it affects all aspects of life. And I made a list of some things there for you to think about. You know, what, what is, is Christ preeminent in our affections, our thoughts, our desires, our motives, our perspectives, our attitudes, actions? careers, treasures. He's preeminent in everything, but are we allowing him to have preeminence in all aspects of our lives? In conclusion, because Jesus is God, because Jesus is the creator and sustainer of all creation, because Jesus is head of the church and because Jesus is risen, he is preeminent. He, is, he has superiority over every aspect of life. As free moral agents, we have the ability to reject his preeminence or embrace it. We can reject it and replace it with something else and often that ends up being our own selves. And my question to you and my challenge to you this morning is, are we willing to give Jesus the preeminence that he rightfully deserves in all aspects of our lives? Let's stand together for a benediction. <clears throat> Now may the God of peace, 
who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by his blood, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. You are dismissed. Blessing of the Lord be with you.